To discussing movies relegated to a late night purgatory. I am one of your hosts, Pat Mitchell. Joining me on this expedition, as always, Adam Walker. Welcome back, Adam. You were uh, sick, sick last week. We had to skip a week. Yeah, I had to convalesce. I probably okay? could have done the episode, but I was pretty, I was pretty stuffed up. Have you fully convalesced? 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 More or less. <laughs> More or yeah, less, or convalesced. More or less, I've uh, I still got a little gunk up in my my head, but I think I've that wasn't from the cold. No, that's just a, that's just you know in my extracurricular activities that crams gunk in my head. That's just classic gunk in your head yeah. from birth. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I think this tonight's episode might be the most midnight flixy uh, movie we've ever done. Uh, well, I think to, we, yeah, I was, gonna go say, I was gonna say it's time to clear the gunk out of your third eye. Yeah. You got, yeah. And that, that's never easy. Uh, cleaning all the, the gunk out of your third eye. Um, <laughs> we have a very broad definition of what we, um, de- define as, as midnight flicks worthy, but I feel like this is right up both of our alleys and uh, a pretty f- Pretty good definition of a of a midnight flick. Holy Mountain, our first um, Jodorowsky movie to grace the pod. It took us three seasons to get to get to one of his movies. Yeah, I I, I had 
I had one in the queue myself, and uh, you you beat me to the punch. So maybe we'll do that one next season. Yeah, hopefully. That'd be that'd be nice. I love Jodorowsky. Mm. Before we get into Holy Mountain at all, though, um, you want to play a little game of Stump the Chump? I always do. All right. So, for those not familiar, Adam has one minute to guess the actor based on his filmography. I will set a stopwatch. Um, let me know when you're ready. I'm ready. Give it to me. Casualties of War, 1989. Jacob's Ladder, 1990. The People Under the Stairs, 1991. Stop or My Mom Will Shoot, 1992. Dave, 1993. Pulp Fiction, 1994. Mission Impossible, 1996. Striptease, same year. It's not Tim Robbins, because I feel like he started before. Not Tim Robbins. 30 seconds left. Con Air, 97. Entrapment, 98. Mission Impossible 2, 2000. 20 seconds left. Oh, man. Dawn of the Dead Remake, 2004. Nope. That's not it. Uh, Ving Ramos? Yes, Ving Rames, yeah. Really? You pronounced it like a like a French sommelier, but I'll give it to you nonetheless. <laughs> Ving Rames. I, I I always thought it was Ving Rames. Oh, yeah. Ving Rames. That's interesting. I I'm trying to recall. Was he in Jacob's Ladder? Is he one of the? Um, I don't know. <laughs> That's just, on. It's on here, but I don't remember him being in that movie. He's got to be one of the Vietnam soldiers that yeah yeah probably one I, of the flashbacks yeah i'm trying to see what he's uh credited as in the um in the on the page here okay ving rames oh, well that doesn't help he plays george <laughs> george george good old george i i just haven't seen jacob's ladder in in so long i love that movie but i i don't remember him being in it necessarily the what i think this is an interesting filmography because a lot of swerves in it yeah. You did a good job. I think what a, what would occlude me right away was so many Mission Impossible movies because he's in all of them, um, which is interesting. Uh, yeah, well, the Dawn of the Dead remake is a is a dead giveaway as well. Yeah, literally, no pun intended, right? No, yeah, it's Dawn of the Dead giveaway. Yeah, yeah, I think uh, that that's where I, it, the punctuations came for me was when you said Pulp Fiction, and that stuck in my brain. Oh, so I was trying another to another one. Yeah, yeah, who was in that? that would have been in Jacob's Ladder. And then the the Dawn of the Dead remake. I think the, that's what helped clarify Those are the, it all for me. the sticking points. Well, congratulations. You've moved to five and two on the season. Five victories and two losses. Um, and one win behind you. So next week will be a big week. We'll see if I can tie it back up. I've never been a winner in my whole life, but here I am. I'm winning. You're winning. You're first place. Out of two. <laughs> I'm chicken. I'm chicken dinning. Here I'm winning. You're at midnight flicks. If you're not in first, you're in last. So, <laughs> boy, ain't that the truth? That'd be me. I'm in last. Um, okay, so I don't even know what kind of off the top discussion we can have about this movie, but what does Holy Mountain mean to you? I guess is like the best way to start this. 
Holy Mountain is a bootleg VHS cassette that I discovered at the secret location that was left behind by my old roommate, Thomas Fisher. Wow. That's what it means to me. No, um, <clears throat> no, that's a cool story. I thought that was going somewhere. Well, I think that is the first time I watched it. It's one of those movies that really, if, if you're in any way a cinephile, it's just one of those movies that at some point you hear about it in reverential tones, I would say. It's just one of those movies that are, people are like, you got to see this movie. Cause it's yeah, if you're dipping, m- your, dipping your toe into any sort of avant-garde filmmaking, you get to this pretty quickly um, on the short list of surrealist uh, filmmakers, I would say. Yeah, and uh, I would say as somewhat of a uh, a student of surrealism that I am, mm-hmm. um, it was uh, you know a very formidable art movement for me, uh, or a formative, I should say, formative art movement for me. Um, it was one of those things where I felt like yes, I did necessarily see need to see this movie because of its. It's a uh, it's associations with surrealism. So, yeah, that's that's interesting. You what your your story about the secret location actually made me think about when I first saw this movie because I don't think I ever thought about this, and then it made me realize just like any uh, good filmography, um, I was I was introduced to this by uh, by a girlfriend way back in the in the day that was like, oh, you like fucking weird things. Here's this, and I was like, holy shit. Just blew my my third eye, just prolapsed wide open. Um, <laughs> but you know, I, I credit her for for showing me any Jodorowsky um, for sure. But having re- rewatched this one probably the most, I love that the Holy Mountain like presents a very simple message, but it's just told in a very complex way. I guess is the best way to say it. Like at the core the central themes of the, of the film are like corruption of mankind and, but also deriving happiness out of like life's simpler pleasures. Um, despite all that, um, Jodorowsky depicts a society that's depraved and, um, you know, you see, you see soldiers that are like gunning down, um, innocent people in the streets while like white tourists, like take pictures of it. So like, religion and sex are is bought and sold, but everything is like meaningless. It's all, it's all just like uh, a consumerist idea of, of religion in a lot of ways. And so if we're talking about like a journey, it's stopping along the way of any sort of journey, whether it's spiritual or just like in life and stopping to enjoy simple things along the way is my like biggest Thing that I take away from this film, regardless of all the bat shittery that is going on, I love that central core theme of it. And that's what it means to me, I guess. Yeah, that's great. Uh, I was really looking forward to having this discussion with you because this movie is, like you said, it's so simple and what it's trying to express, but so complex. Um, in fact, you know, as, as I told you, and we've had this discussion recently, I've been trying to utilize our letterbox account more, more for my own sake to kind of help me to 
you know, kind of hone my discussions of movies by writing it out more, which I need to do. And I did a review about this movie before we actually started talking about it. And one of the things I said was, every time I watch it, I feel like it reveals so much while obscuring so much at the same time. Yeah. You know, because each time you watch it, you have different revelations, but then you notice that there's so much more that it's probably trying to say that you're not understanding at the moment, I think. Yeah. And it's, and I think yeah. that is what, that is the essence of esotericism, which this movie is clearly steeped in esotericism. So, yeah. It's an onion. You peel it. And it's just got it's just got layers, layers upon layers. This is an an impossible movie to watch uh, with one viewing and be like, well, I absorbed all of that. <laughs> well, and I love reading reviews about movies like this in particular because they're so polarizing. And one of the things that always consistently would come up that I think is funny is people explaining how confusing it was and how it was just like Yodorovsky was just vomiting this pretentious kind of gibberish. But to me, especially after this, this watch, I'm like, I think that this movie is pretty consistently clear as far as a, as a film is made, the way it's constructed. It's just, yeah, it's got it, a linear narrative, right? Like, it has a linear narrative. There's clear character development in it. So it's funny to me that people are trying to throw these accusations at it. To me, it's just it it's just this knee-jerk thing that people have, especially in this country, where we do have, unfortunately, a, a large mass of the populace being very uneducated, not having a whole lot of critical thinking skills, not really wanting to kind of step outside of their comfort zones and and try to understand maybe more avant-garde, interesting forms of art and culture. And I hate to sound like that, like I'm a fucking snob, but <laughs> I think it is that knee-jerk reaction of a lot of people will be, to be like, well, this is just pretentious, pretentious bullshit because you can't understand it upon its first, you know, comprehension of it. So it is easy to write it off as such. Yeah. Um, and yes, to defend it does put you in a position of being a fart huffing weirdo. Um, <laughs> so it, it puts you in, in that unfortunate circumstance because defending this, you can't defend this without, without sounding like just the most pretentious fucking snob on the planet. It's hard to defend it um, without sounding like one, but, but yeah, I, I agree that actually, despite how, you know, quote unquote bizarre it is, there is a linear narrative and it. it has a story that actually moves. Like you're un- like, there's, there's a, there's a story there. That's actually a perfect segue. Let's get into the plot description. I had to rewrite this like three or four times because I didn't know <laughs> what to put in and leave out. But um, this is what I ultimately came down to. So in terms of a plot, a man simply referred to as the thief goes on a spiritual quest of enlightenment after meeting an alchemist who promises him a path to immortality. That is the long and the short of it. Uh, this, this man who uh, has a strong resemblance to Christ or Christ-like figure 
uh, is known as the thief, just basically goes on the spiritual quest that's that's you know administered by a mysterious alchemist who promises him immortality, and you know everything kind of unfolds from there. Where things get more confusing, though, uh, in terms of a budget, money made, money lost. <laughs> According to the Wikipedia, the movie had a budget of 750000 But then there's also the whole thing of John Lennon and Yoko Ono personally giving Jodorowsky a million dollars to make this movie. So, like, I don't know where that million dollars comes into play. Um, but ultimately, I looked up actual box office numbers for any theater that would actually show this for any amount of time. Um, and... It, you know, on a domestic level, it made sixty thousand according to these to this box office website, and then internationally made eight thousand dollars. <laughs> so a worldwide total of about sixty eight thousand on a budget of about seven hundred and fifty thousand. And up to this point, was the most expensive Mexican movie ever made. Um, so there's a lot to to suss out there because those numbers aren't reflective of its success. It's just that the, the kind of movie that could not be released into a wide audience to a wide audience in, in lots of theaters. So I'm not surprised, but I'm just I'm curious as to was did was he like bankrupt after making this? I can't tell. I mean, uh, the million dollar donation from John Lennon probably helped, but I, I just could not. I guess the long and the short of it is I, I could not suss out exactly what was what he made monetarily from this if anything at all yeah he he definitely had some wealthy benefactors helping with the creation of this movie but the funny thing is for a budget of seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars, they really did a lot it's really pretty astonishing how expansive and kind of, you know, creative they got with that little amount of money. Even by though by that time standards, that's not a lot of money for a, a movie. And <clears throat> there's a lot going on in this movie. So but as far as Yodorowsky himself going bankrupt or anything like that, I don't know. As far as I know, his next film after this wasn't Till like Santa Sangre, which was quite a yeah bit after. Yeah, uh, there's a weird history here that we'll get into a little bit in the wiki wormhole. Um, but yeah, his journey to Santa Sangre is a little strange. Makes me think that if it took him that many years to make another film, that filmmaking was difficult for him from a from a financially backing level. Um, well, I'm sure it was. And also, we have to consider that in the interim between those, he was in production, pre-production development for, for Dune. There's yeah. that whole saga that happened. Yeah. Um, for anyone that hasn't seen Dune's Jodorowsky's Dune, the documentary, it's a one of the best documentaries on, on a, a what-if scenario that's ever been made. Yeah, it's one of my favorite documentaries based off of a of a mythical hypothetical film that yeah. never came to fruition. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. I, that that's one of my favorite, favorite documentaries ever. Um, anything else 
you want to say before we get into the good, the bad, and the questionable? No, let's just get into it. All right. The good, the bad, and the questionable. I think this is the easiest way to talk about this movie is to go chronologically, act by act. I just, I started writing down some good and I was like, I cannot talk about, I just cannot talk about this movie unless we go chronologically. It's just easier to organize my thoughts and perhaps that's why you do it. But on a neat, on a film like Cobra, I like to bounce around to all the fun shit that's in that movie. This movie, I personally think we should discuss chronologically and you know, talk about the good along the way. Fair enough. So act one, um, I've, I've divided it into three acts, but act one, we meet the thief character, uh, who obviously bears a striking resemblance to Christ. His face is, is covered in flies. He's pissing himself. Um, I imagine this is uh, like George Thorogood on a Saturday night. <laughs> this, is, this is like after a real heavy bender the night before. <laughs> Waking up. I mean, you know, I think we both had these sort of <laughs> these sort of incidents just happen where you just wake up, man, I am fucked up. I got a mask of flies. I've, I've pissed. I've soiled myself again. <laughs> Anyway, the thief is quickly befriended by uh, a handless, footless man who rolls a spliff of miscellaneous drugs for them to share. Um, and speaking of which, th- this is a, I don't know if you, you thought the same thing. This is a callback to our Freaks episode was, where Prince Prince Randy enrolls the cigarette, huh? Yeah, I was just going to mention Prince Randy. And this is, this is a somewhat more um, appendage... Uh, appendage. Yeah. Anyways, I'm, he's, got I'm, I'm, I'm not, he's got a hand and a foot he, over him. He, he at least isn't just a tater tot. He actually has some sort of extremities <laughs> coming out of. Well, his I was gonna say, eye. who's the more who's the more prolific uh, cigarette roller? But it's no, it's no question. Prince Randian. Prince Randian basically has to do it with his mouth. Yeah. But yes, this uh, fellow freak. Um, I say that lovingly. Uh, rolls a cigarette. They 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 bond over this this drug altered state, and stumble into town where where they meet uh, and are met with a a reenactment of. You can correct me if I'm wrong. Is this supposed to be like the Spanish Empire's conquest of the Aztec, uh, or like what what's going on here with the with the it, which is. <laughs> reenacted using lizards and toads. I guess this is a good, this is a good starting point in terms of where are you at with this, with this reenactment scene with the lizards and the toads? Yeah, that's exactly what it is. And this is where we immediately enter what I consider the, uh, imperialism panorama. Yeah, that's a good, Oh, that's a good way to put it. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. But, but we're not left here for very long. Um, 
because this eventually segues into I, I I actually wish there was more of this, but um, the thief and <laughs> we need to name the, his sidekick because I don't know how to. He doesn't have a name in the movie, um, as far as I know. Uh, he, he he is essentially he is the psychological burden of the mm. thief. He is mm. he is essentially he is what would be considered like the I guess the 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 block to his enlightenment. And the distraction we, on his he, journey, right? He's he is he is the blockage of the third eye, I suppose. But if we were to like name him for the purposes of referring to him for this podcast, what would you? What do we want to name him? Let's name him Ayahuasca Tattoo, like from Fantasy Island. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> Anyway, the thief and his trusty um, limbless sidekick, uh, they eventually come up with like a grift of sorts. And this is what I wanted more of. I wish the grifting was like uh, there was more of it. But anyway, they come up with a grift of sorts where they use and commoditize um, the thief's likeness to create an an army of effigies, um, which are bought and sold by by white tourists. Um I needed more of this. I loved the like the plastering and then like just from a visual perspective, the shot of him in the warehouse of all of the crucifixions is just fucking so tight. Yeah, there's a few notable what do they call it? like a mise en scene. I guess that would be mise en scene. Yeah, mise en scene, a mise en scene moments for me that have always stuck out. The, there's one in particular, which is the skinned animals on the crucifixes that are being paraded yeah. through the city. Um, and then there is that shot of the replicated price thief images in the warehouse. One those, of my favorite shots. I yeah, love that those shot. two really just, when I first saw them, just really burrowed themselves deep into my subconscious. I wonder if PETA knows this movie exists. This is a bad, uh, bad beat for animal rights people. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's definitely some uh, <laughs> liberties taken with our animal friends. I don't, I'm not against most of it. I, I heard that the, well, we'll get into it in the wiki wormhole because I, I don't want to step on my wiki dick. But yeah, yeah, it's a tough, tough film from an animal rights perspective. I heard all those toads died. (laughs) Oh, wow. All the like the toads that were used in the film. It was like a one off thing. Like they were used for the reenactment and then they like all perished. I don't know why. I don't know what's going on there. Yeah, he used a lot of them. Um, You know, this was a time in filmmaking where that was an acceptable practice. Yeah, (laughs) fuck them, right? Oh, they're just fucking. They're just fucking toads. Um, so the thief eventually rails against this idea of theo- <laughs> I put down that this is the version of theological pay for play. <laughs> like he rails against this idea of theological pay for play, um, and it, he by doing so he eats the faces. He eats the face of one of the life size effigies before sending the rest of the the corporeal vessel 
up into the air, which yeah. both like metaphorically and literally is such a such great imagery. I, lo- I love that that scene as well. Yeah, his little little Christ cake. He has a little Christ cake. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the thief eventually comes across this large golden hook, which descends from from a tower um, and ascends up the hook where he uh, where he meets the alchemist, which I believe is the beginning of Act Two. I wanted to stop along the way as much as I could to let you like uh, say whatever you liked about. Um, so if I passed shit, what about act one? Have I passed up that we have not talked about that you, that you really wanted to touch upon? Well, not necessarily. I like it cause I like all aspects of this movie in certain ways, <clears throat> but we kind of did gloss over the interaction that he has with the, what is essentially, I would say the origins or a kind of a, a brief explanation of the Catholic church because mm. you have the Roman centurions and then the nun who yeah. is played by a man that's that's cross-dressing. Yeah. So that's the thing yeah. with that. And then there's also, we glossed over, there is the the public sex that's taking place between the one tourist and I think it's one of the soldiers. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you know, there's all those other things happening within there where you can just really stop in those moments and you could parse out just by those like certain scenes or those parts that he's trying to say something with each, you know, step in that first act. That was another thing that I kind of was like thinking in my head where it's like, this is one of those movies that there's nothing that is filler in my mind. No, there's, no. Even it could seem silly. Like there's silly shit where you're like, yeah. what the hell is going on? But it all has meaning, at least to him. Right. I To me, it just, it really feels like each scene is a complete sort of story or message. thing that he's trying to, re- or message that he's trying to represent. It's not all just like, jumbled up you know surrealism for surrealist sake or yeah, nonsense you know, for nonsense's sake yeah so i guess that's a that, that would be the only things that maybe i would want to talk about before we go into the second act and mind you as i was saying before with people thinking that you know this movie's nonsensical and it's not made with any sort of like um cohesion or purpose and you said it yourself to me, this movie has distinctly three acts, like any yeah, classic. If I, yeah, if if it didn't, I wouldn't be able to to divide it up so so evenly. Yeah, right. Like any classic screenplay formula, has, it has three acts. So, I you know I don't understand, and it, it to me it's 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 so obvious. There's the demarcation point where you're going from one to the other to the other. Yeah, just the whole I, ton- the tonal shift and and you know shift of the narrative is very distinct. Yeah, because Act One up until when he meets the um, the alchemist, I Act One feels very much so like the iconoclastic 
act. Um, he's very, it, it's deconstructing this idea of religious worship. Yeah. Um, in, in also like, a there's a, there's lots of, uh, lots of allegories towards capitalism and white people in, in, you know, tourism in, and right. what is bought and sold and, you know, lot, lots of messages that are, deeply ingrained in that first act that, you know, we could talk about all day. Once again, the aforementioned imperialism as yes. well. Yes. Uh, Very much so. and, and I would note that, especially when there, when you're reading or immersing yourself in esotericism or the occult, one thing that is very, you know, one thing that, maybe somebody that's trying to teach the occult will always explain to you is there's a difference between what would be considered the sacred and profane. Yeah. The occult, the occult is what is the thing that essentially, you know, is behind the literal message of religion. So you have what is the literal fundamentalist, understanding of let's say a religious text like the bible or the torah or the quran or whatever and then there is the occult or esoteric or mystical understanding of it so to me you know this first act in a lot of ways is if you're on a journey if you're on an like a mystical journey that's what you interface with first you interface with that profane version of religion and then you have if you're if if you want to transcend that then you have to you know move into the occult stage of understanding that religion and that's where we're getting to with the second act yeah segue into act two yeah i agree yeah anyway i also to piggyback off of the just the theme of imperialism i love the dichotomy of the reenactment with the, with the toads and the lizards of the Spanish conquest of, of the Aztec empire, which is then juxtaposed with, um, white tourists taking pictures of dead bodies that riddle the street. Like it's like a modern day interpretation of the reenactment. And I love the juxtaposition of, of both. It's like modern day imperialism looks like this white tourists, you know, photographing dead bodies in the streets and being, being sold trinkets. And then, there's also, you know, a long standing history of this imperialism in the form of the reenactment as well. So absolutely. And, and at that time, when this movie came out, it was right when we were in the thick of Western meddling with the Southern Hemisphere as far as, yeah. you know, the neo-colonial imperialist uh you know, undertakings that we started to really dig into down there in Mexico and South America and in Southeast Asia. So I think that's another good thing about this movie is it really is a snapshot of, you know, that was happening right there in Mexico at that time. And, And there's a through line from that to Spanish imperialism. Yeah, I totally agree. I wonder if Howard Zinn has ever seen this movie. <laughs> what he thinks about it. He got real hot. He just he dropped the tab. 
in between uh, writing the you know, people's history of the people's United history, States. History, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so Act Two. We open up with uh, a brief and, to me, unsatisfying knife fight, which um, ends in the thief being disarmed and then forced to huff his own turd fumes, um, <laughs> which is the start of, of any good spiritual journey. Uh, the shit pile is eventually turned to gold, and the alchemist tells the thief some wise words. He says, quote, you, you are excrement. You can change yourself into gold, which is uh, funny in the moment, but thinking back... Very wise. I, I like I like that quote, and I like the meaning of of this idea of transformation and and what it means to the individual to transform and, and what what they want out of the experience. I, I like that idea. Yeah. So um, this then begins the actual spiritual quest. The thief. Um, is told he will be accompanied by seven powerful entities in the form of celebrity moguls, politicians, uh, various war profiteers, um, each representing a different planet in our solar system, and each of which we get a detailed background story for. This, unequivocally, is my favorite part of the movie. I love the background. It's almost like Mini vignette, these mini vignettes are almost like little short films that exist within the film. But I love each and every one is such a microcosm of this chaotic world that each one of these seven powerful entities exist in. I love the storytelling. I this it's a weird departure. Like you're like, really, we're going to learn about all seven of them. And some of the stories are shorter than others, but we're here for a while. Like we are learning about all seven in rather intricate detail. Yeah. And I describe them as the, the seven oligarchs. That's a good, yeah. Yeah. That's a good way. Wonderful way to put it. Um, do we want to get into the seven, the seven oligarchs as you put it? Yeah, absolutely. Because, yeah, it really, to me, it was an interesting choice for Yodorovsky to utilize these particular characters to move the narrative along to the final act. So, yeah, like, I think this is definitely my favorite part of the movie as well. Oh, the most, yeah. What you can glean the most from upon repeated viewing. Yeah, I agree. Did you want to backtrack to any of the shit huffing or any of that? Any of the like actual like the the part of the movie that actually most resembled an ayahuasca experience? Uh, do you want to touch upon any of that, or are we good? <laughs> no, I mean, other than I just again, I really like Yodorovsky's explicit use of certain occult technique and occult symbolism, like the tarot and. And he really does a good job of tying in all of these different schools and formula and, you know, uh, devices that are in the occult to distill it into this tale. But, yeah, I will say that visually that when he meets the alchemist, it is the most stunning visual representation in the film, Um, you know, before it gets crazy. But we haven't said this. 
the long uh, shot there in like the chamber. Yes, everything. But like yeah. even from that to like the so we haven't said this, but uh, Jordorowski actually plays the role of of the alchemist, um, and he is dressed like I told uh, Aaron this when when uh, we were watching it. This was Aaron's first time seeing it, oh. um, but I told her like. If this was on the runway of like the season finale of RuPaul's Drag Race, like he would fucking like it'd be ten out of ten, slay all day. You're Shante, you stay. Like he's Absolutely. like head to toe in the most elaborate. He's like a fashion icon in this. I can't even describe it because I'm su- I'm such an idiot describing clothes. But he's got this giant. He's dre- he's white from head to toe. He's got a giant i don't even know what kind of fucking hat that is this is like a straight build sombrero <laughs> i don't even yeah it's, like, even it's a sombrero 10 gallon hat sort of hybrid <laughs> it is yeah. it is he looks like the holy arby's logo yeah he does <laughs> <laughs> yeah he's the holy yeah. representation of the beef and cheddar yeah well <laughs> And sorry, I don't want to like backtrack a whole lot, but we did completely gloss over the the initial scene of this movie where it's the alchemist dressed all in black with the two I describe them as the the budget Marilyn Monroe's. Mm. <laughs> the be- the best that, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and he ends up shaving their heads. So that's the introduction into the movie. That's even prior to us uh, getting in on the uh, on the hangover bender uh, after yeah. day after of the thief, so that's the actual initial shot. So we have the the black alchemists, and now we have the white alchemist. And yes, the wardrobe the wardrobe design and set design in this movie is fantastic. And, and he's wearing just, like ten inch leather pumps. Like he yeah. looks insane. He looks so. A pair of white culottes. I don't even know how to describe that. But the shot of him with the two fucking evil goats is <laughs> is so. That's such a tight shot. It's unbelievable. Well, and then there's the there's the the painted woman, which is yeah. his assistant sidekick, the one that has the 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 various uh, symbols and uh, Hebrew alphabet uh, scrolls. Yeah. She's there to hand out like the ayahuasca cups and make sure no one like chokes on their vomit. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. She's, she's there for administrative support for sure. She has an important job. Yeah. Okay. I'm glad we, I'm glad we went back. Okay. So to get into the seven, uh, the seven oligarchs, as you so eloquently put, do you have a favorite right off the bat? Um, or you want me to go through them and then we'll talk about which ones. Yeah, let's go through them. Uh, okay. I think I have it written down, but go ahead. Yeah. I think I have this in order of how we meet them, but pardon me if I don't. Okay. So we meet Fawn. They don't all have names, which is weird, but they begin with having names. Fawn is this millionaire art dealer who makes artificial body parts. Um, he's representing the planet of Jupiter. Um, then we meet uh, Isla. A, a weapons manufacturer who specializes in these stylish and irresistible weapons of mass destruction who represents Mars. I don't want to interrupt. Have, yeah, go ahead. But you, you did skip over one already. 
Though, so yes. these aren't in order. Oh, they're not in order. I thought you were going in order because no, was... I I said I said uh, these. So if if I skipped one, then these aren't in order. But I have all of them. So oh, okay, sorry, then continue. That's okay. I, when I wrote them down, it wasn't. I was partly from memory, and then I had to research some of it. Well, and I do want to point out that they actually do all have names. They do. Okay, they I all, couldn't find names, names for all of them. Okay, yeah. so you can help with that part. Yeah. Cell, a toy maker who manufactures toys which inspire hatred and violence amongst children, representing Saturn. Yeah. Uh, do you have the name for the person from Uranus? What was their occupation? He's a corrupt political advisor who doubles as a merciless warmonger. Oh, yeah. That is... So we have Lut, Axon, Berg... Cell, Clen, Isla, Fawn. That's one, two, three, four, five, six. That's seven. Um, that one, it, I'm not sure. I'm drawing a blank. Yeah, fuck it. it their names are me- rather meaningless. I want to say that, that that is Berg. Berg, okay. Yeah. <laughs> then we have simply a, just like a police chief representing Neptune. Um, that's Axon. That's, of, that's Axon. Okay, that's Axon. And I was, I was right. The one that was representing Uranus, who is the pre- presidential, basically yeah. the, the the what is it? The not Joint Chiefs of Staff, but the uh, yes. Anyways, like the kind of like the communications director or whatever. <laughs> yeah, like they're a corrupt political advisor. An advisor, yeah. So, anyways, yeah. Berg. That's so then the police chief is Axon. He represents Neptune. Then you have a millionaire art dealer representing Jupiter. Um, yeah. And that's Clen. Clen. Okay. And then we have the final one, which is like this shallow hedonistic architect representing Pluto. That is Lut. That's Lut. Okay. There you go. Of these short stories, which one was your favorite? Um, I, I, I want to say, I'm going to say I, I have to go with cell. Yes. I love cell. The, the toy maker. I love the idea that you have to get the children early. So like them, right. I, I, but also it's a commentary on like, you know, GI Joe's and toy guns and the militaristic, uh, you know, ad campaign towards children. So, right. The inculcation of, militancy and toxic masculinity and war, you know warmongering at an early age that incidentally I don't know if you knew this but that was played by Yodorovsky's ex-wife oh interesting Val- okay. Valerie Yodorovsky that she played Cell she plays Cell I also yeah. love Isla um, the uh, the weapons manufacturer that that's does like stylized interpretations of weapons of mass destruction. I, I loved her whole angle. I loved her whole look. She was great. Right. She has one line where they're, they're manufacturing the weapons and she's, she's points out that they make psychedelic shotguns and rock and roll weapons. Yeah. <laughs> so great. It is, is wonderful, but I love all of them equally. I, you know, I love more, not equally. I love some of them more than others, but all of them are, it's entrancing going in and out of all seven of these is just, and to speak back to what we were talking about, like people are like, Oh, it's, you know, at times confusing and hard to follow. It's like, you're given seven people 
you're given a name, you're shown who they are, and then you're given their backstories. Like what this part is not confusing at all. I mean, you're just given these seven people that will accompany the thief on his journey. Come on now. Yeah. Again, when people say stuff like that, you're not even trying. You're, you're not just, trying. It's a knee-jerk reaction to something that has some sort of depth or perspective that you're not used to. And you just, oh, well, it's confusing. This it's is the nonsense. Same, it's the same thing as when some fucking, you know, dickhead, whatever, like a MAGA dickhead or chud would say when they would see uh, a, an abstract expressionist painting. Just not even like people like that, just an old white man. An old white man looks at a Jackson Pollock and says, well, my kid could paint that. This is the same kind of mindset that occupies, you know, somebody's brain when they yeah, come to a Yeah, I could throw a, a bunch of shit on the wall and see what sticks. Right. So do you, uh, before I finish act two, um, any any more to say about the seven? Well, I did want to say that another important thing to really discuss with this movie is, and Jodorowsky was trying to do this intentionally. Jodorowsky came from essentially a school of performance art, or he he created like his own performance art group prior to making this movie, where their whole te- intent was to be as shocking and offensive and jarring in the way they represented their art um, to kind of, you know, shake people's consciousness and, you know, force them to think a different way. So that sort of philosophy, of course, is utilized in making this movie where you have very clear representations of violence, but you also have very clear representations of sexuality. It was a pretty horny movie. Yeah. Yeah, it yeah. is. And different, like, it's like very gender bending, too. Right. Exactly. So I wanted to point out its expressions of sexuality and eroticism, as well as its expressions of violence that is encapsulated in this tale of, you know, transcendence that we're kind of going on this journey we're going on. Definitely ahead of its time in a lot of, in a lot of those ways for sure. Yeah. Go ahead. So the alchemist instructs the seven to burn their worldly possessions along with, um, wax effigies of themselves. The group then embarks on their spiritual journey to the Holy mountain, which definitively begins act three. Anything else on Act 2? Well, I did want to also say, because you get a little glimpse of this with the thief tucking away mm-hmm. the money. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just like a thief. Look at that, that old scamp. Look at him. Thief. Thieves are going to thief. Yeah. Thieves are going to thief. <laughs> but it's it's little things like that that also it, uh, show the sense of humor that Yodorovsky had. Yeah, he, I agree. There, there's definitely... There is a dark black comic aspect of this movie as well. That's an excellent point. It's not meant to be taken like gravely seriously. Uh, it's it. There is there are points of um, lightheartedness in it, and I don't just mean like it's funny to see someone like huff their own shit in some sort of like 
you know, cryogenic chamber or whatever. But like, um, there are some there period there are some moments of of lightheartedness that that I appreciate and like essential very fucked up and dark humor, but nonetheless like funny. Well, an absurdist, and to me, absurdist. That's the great. Yeah, that's the best way to put it. Yeah, to me, having this kind of absurdist perspective on the world and reality is, in a lot of ways, its own form of enlightenment. Yeah, um, I mean, it is kind of it's the fundamental basis of certain philosophers whole perspective like Camus and Sartre, like these existentialists where especially Camus, that was, that was the central tenet of like, say like a story of the stranger where the takeaway is when you really think about the mechanics of the world and the mechanics of things that we engage in and take for granted, on a day-to-day basis, if you really think about it, it's all absurd. Reality is absurd. The construction of reality as we know it is absurd. And I think when you get to that understanding, it is its own kind of epiphanous moment. So I think maybe Yodorovsky was trying to utilize that as well. <clears throat> by Certainly, yeah. You know, by kind of portraying these things in, in that dark, comic, absurdist way. All right. Which we get, I think we get, I think so far in the movie through two acts, we haven't gotten a ton of that. We've gotten some sprinklings of that. I think act three is where that aspect is on full display. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. Perfect segue then. So act three begins with our, our, our seven that are, that have become nine because it includes, uh, both the alchemist and his assistant. So they, they become, um, or no wait. I'm sorry. Well, this is where it gets confusing for me because it's 10 actually, but they describe it as the nine because yeah. So the nine is, is the seven powerful entities plus the assistant plus the thief. That's the nine. And together with the alchemist, they make the 10. I now, think is the implication. Right. So I might be, reaching a little bit in this assessment but are you familiar with the tree of life the cabalistic tree of life no i've seen i've seen the (laughs) the movie the tree of life but no i have not yes okay um so i think maybe by obscuring the 10th individual in this group that might be a Yodorovsky. Uh, that might be Yodorovsky referencing the Tree of Life. So, real quickly, to give you like a summation of what the Tree of Life is, it's it's a glyph. It's it's a very complex symbol that's utilized in Kabbalism. That's comprised of spheres that are called Sephiroth, and each Sephiroth represents a different plane or state of existence and there's 10 of them one of them is invisible though essentially one of them (laughs) one of them can't be necessarily perceived immediately Um, okay so maybe he's trying to say that that like because the figures in this movie they all obviously represent 
other things. They represent a series of ideas and symbols unto themselves. They're self-contained entities. So I think that's maybe what he's trying to say in that regards is the, the tenth one that isn't always discussed is representing that more occult uh, state. I don't know what the hell you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> I tried. Yeah. Uh, your guess is as good as mine, but I don't know. I that, think that, that's, that sounds good. That sounds very, that sounds good. I, don't I think know. that's one of them. But anyways, go on. So the 10 or the nine, whatever, however you want to uh, classify the group moving forward, um, are led. Well, I guess I'm just going to call them the nine. The nine are led by the alchemists through various transformation rituals. Uh, the 10 journey by boat to Lotus Island um, in order to gain the, the secret of immortality um, from again, more this, this is where it gets heavy for me, where I'm like a little checked out in, in terms of like the weight and the, in the implication of, of what everything means metaphorically. But in order to gain the secret of immortality, they have to bestow this wisdom from um, nine immortal masters who live on a, on a holy mountain. Um, but once they're on uh, Lotus Island, they're sidetracked by the Pantheon bar. Now this is other than the, the seven people, the seven oligarchs, uh, that we meet earlier. This scene is also one of my favorites as well. This like cemetery party straight out of return of the living dead. Like it's, <laughs> it's a sick fucking, I think this is the most hedonistic portrayal in the movie. Just, this is like rock and roll and, uh, people that have abandoned their quest, um, in lieu of drugs and beat poetry and, uh, various acts of physical prowess <laughs> right they lost their way they were on the path they were on the journey to enlightenment and they lost their way they were distracted yeah but, but i love like when they stumble upon this uh if it, it feels like the heaven's gate cult like uh stumbling uh, across like a bukkake like just stuff that they like could never fucking imagine all these all these star trek nerds Speaking yeah. specifically of the of Heaven's Gate, but yeah, yeah, it's like they it's like they came to like a Rolling Stones after party. Yes, yeah, very much so. <laughs> Which this could this I, as much as I love this, this is this is what the kids say is a, a nightmare blunt rotation. Like I don't know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm not really sure. Is. I want to <laughs> be there long term, um, but nonetheless. Um, I'm still reeling from that tree of life explanation. I, I like you lost me, but now I'm like thinking, I'm just like thinking back on what you were saying. Anyway, <laughs> we can do some off the mic discussion about that. So I can maybe ex- clarify. You can, you can mansplain Kabbalism to me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Um, leaving the bar behind. Cause the, the nine decide that this is not their vibe. Um, they ascend they, to begin. They begin to ascend the mountain, um, and each has a a personal symbolic vision representing their worst fears and obsessions. Um, this, now, this specifically to me is straight out of like a Star Trek episode. There's there's 
several episodes that I can think of through a variety of Star Trek platforms where uh, an away mission goes awry and people are suddenly their worst fears and obsessions are like come to life in like some yeah. sort of like trippy haze that I, I love this idea of it. Um, so near the top, the thief is, is sent back to his quote unquote people along with, we have not touched upon this. The young prostitute and the ape, which make like a very strange appearance throughout. What did you make of that? Yeah, that was another thing that I meant to double back on with the first scene is we didn't talk about the prostitutes, the the, the holy divine prostitutes and, and, and their uh, introduction there. And so obviously this young prostitute that returns is from that original group that the thief interacts with their in the first act. Is it supposed to be like a Mary Magdalene type yes. thing situation? That's what I took it as. It's a, this is a Mary Magdalene figure. And <clears throat> the ape to me is just, that's obviously another symbol of, of man's evolution. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I, I, I saw it as the most primitive um, version of mankind. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Anyway, yes, the prostitute and the ape who have been following the thief from city to mountain, um, which now I'm like, now I'm having epiphanies, much like Mary Magdalene was a Mary Magdalene being a disciple of Christ and following him. So, right, man, it's all coming together. Just, just when you think you figured this shit out, I'm having revelations on mic as we're talking about. It. Okay. Yeah, yeah. The rest uh, confront these cloaked immortals who are shown to be only faceless mannequins or dummies. Um, it, the alchemist. Now we're basically at the end, but we'll backtrack to talk about this act, but the alchemist then breaks the fourth wall with, with directorial commands and says, zoom back camera and reveals the, the film apparatus, the, the cameras, the microphones, the lights, the crew just outside the frame. And he instructs everyone, including breaking the fourth wall, including um, anyone viewing the movie, to leave the Holy Mountain. Goodbye to the Holy Mountain. Real life awaits us. And it's this big, <laughs> long form sort of breaking of the fourth wall. Um, I personally could not see this ending any more perfectly. I loved, I love the ending. I don't know how you end this type of movie, but I, I liked the idea of like, go forth on your own spiritual quest. Like now is when he breaks the fourth wall and instructs everyone to live my interpretation life to their fullest. That means the most to the individual who is, absorbing this film um i love that that message but that's a lot what do we want to talk about third act wise yeah i just want to say before we do any doubling back or whatever that ending is perfect it's the perfect ending right it brings me such joy when that ending happens and what i feel yodorovsky was trying to say with that where he's trying to say Yes, cinema as itself, because it's a commentary not just on his film, but it's commentary on cinema in general. And 
this movie in itself is a commentary on the illusions that we beset ourselves with that keep us from realizing our own potential. Yeah, I like that. There it is. So within the movie itself, we're having that discussion. But then he's, as by breaking the fourth wall in more ways than one, he's having the discussion or opening the discussion of cinema itself being an illusory experience that we can either utilize as as a tool to enhance our life outside of the viewing experience, or we can become ensnared by it and use movies as complete escapism all the time. Yeah. And and in a lot of ways that escapism is like, if we had stayed at the Pantheon bar, like you, like that is the equivalent of using films and getting lost in film. But in the spiritual journey, they went past it and went on to greater things. So, right. Again, being ensnared by escapism, yeah. uh, Being ensnared by our addictions and our diversions, all of the like tangible bullshit that we fill, uh, that you fill that wall behind you with all of the, the movies and books and consumerism that we shove in. Yeah. All the drugs and, yeah, the beer that I consume regularly, <laughs> all the shitty beer that I shove down my fuckhole and fill my <laughs> empty vessel with. Yeah, I get as, it. And it, it's powerful because it is. It's like we fill our lives. We have voids that we fill our lives with all of this tangible nonsense. Um, and at the end of the day, it's like you got to get get to living. Right. And so that's. Yeah, that's what he's trying to say is you have these things. There's nothing wrong with some of these no, things. No, and yeah, I don't want to say that. Yeah, that's not the implication you know, here. There are obviously things that he's discussing in this film that their essence is wrong. But there are things within the movie that you can use them to help enhance life. Or you can they could be albatrosses. They can be weights. They could be the thing unto themselves that you're trying to get joy from, as opposed to the thing that these are supposed to be things that bring you joy, you know, in the, in the greater journey of life. I think that's really what that whole last scene is trying to say is, yeah, the, you know, movies are great. Cinema is great. Art is great. Religion can be great. The occult, drugs, all these things as experiential enhancers, but you can't let them keep you from moving forward with your own personal and spiritual growth. Yeah, because those simple pleasures at the end of the day mean the most, honestly, because we're only here for a short time. And to, to know that your quest in this life is to be shackled into this fucking hellscape of of capitalism where we work and sleep and wake and work and work and sleep and wake and work yeah it's it's more than that it's 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 what we derive out of it life is what you make of it life is a highway baby (laughs) i just want to ride it all night long oh my gosh i don't it's so funny that you just referenced that song because it 
it reemerged in my life. Your favorite song of all time. Recently, and I had to have a discussion with Charlotte about it because I know too much about that song. I'm just going to put it that way. <laughs> I um, love just that idea. <laughs> um, yeah. I know, um, I know too much about that song. I know too much about that song. Um, I, have, I have secrets. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, um, one thing that I'm still trying to parse out and have my own better understanding of with this movie is Jodorowsky's use of the uh, uh, of the oligarchs as vessels or representatives of enlightenment, and him cleaving them from the thief. I'm still trying to figure out what exactly he's trying to say by, okay, so he's taken these kind of in a lot of ways reprehensible, like these people that kind of represent the worst in humanity, which is what oligarchs do. Like the ruling class represent the worst in humanity. They're like, they're the apotheosis of the worst of humanity. So what is he trying to say by taking them and sublimating them and recreating them and then removing the thief as a representative of what I would consider like the regular man or the regular human, the regular everyday Joe, Joe the plumber, <laughs> whatever, yeah. everyday yeah. schmuck. What, 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 you know, by separating him from the pack and having him go off with the ape and, and Mary Magdalene, the, the young prostitute, I'm still trying to figure out what he's trying to say about. Like, is he, cause to me, it's like, it can be a confusing message where <laughs> if you wanted to be like a real fucking, I guess if you wanted to be over, overly sensitive about it in this analysis, it's almost like he's trying to say that these are the people that represent the best in humanity. Um, they just need to be, <laughs> uh, shown the, the right way. I don't know. You know, you understand think, what I'm trying to get at here? I think the seven represent like this anachronistic collision of mankind's worst traits. And yeah. to strip them and to like take that away from the thief, the Mary Magdalene and the ape represent a return to origin. Like we have come this far in our in our journey as mankind. And this is, this is the, what we have to show for it. So by stripping all of like the worst traits of mankind away and returning back to the origin of our species is the only way in which to find like true enlightenment, I guess, um, yeah. in a lot of ways. But I, I hear what you're saying. Um, I'm not saying that that's what he is saying. Cause I know that's not what he's trying no, to say. I know. Yeah. That. But, that's what I think. And I think yeah. he makes it, though, this is the type of thing with him. He doesn't make these films so it's, let's try to guess what I, his interpretation of it is. He His whole thing is, what did this mean to you? And if you derived some meaning out of it, that's that's ultimately all that matters. So, like, what is your interpretation of it? And... Why is that meaningful to you? And I think that's powerful. Like, he doesn't have to be 
one, you know, one meaning or one message behind everything. I think there's clear and and very definitive things that he's trying to say, but I think more the more um, you know gray area of it is up to up to the individual. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know how much we can. T- <laughs> Where does how this much leave more we us? Talk about the 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 thing with moving forward from here with the 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 latter half of this section. I don't really have much to say. It's almost like I felt like because there are so many questions about this unto itself that we were going to have within the discussion. I almost felt like jettisoning the questionable personally. Oh, well, let's start with bad. And then, yeah, because I'm with you on questionable. Do you have any bad? I don't. And I hate to say it, but because I hate, I only hate to say it because I really try to be selective about the movies that we discuss where I have nothing bad to say. Of course, I know it doesn't happen a lot, but I didn't have a whole lot bad to say about this movie. And I came away from this most recent viewing of it, really, really appreciating it even more to the point where I, I, I feel like this is one of my favorite movies. Mm. So I'm going to leave it up to you then to, to point out what you think is bad. And maybe that'll help me suss out, I do well, have I some talk. bad, yeah, okay. not a lot. Well, first of all, anything that John Lennon and Yoko Ono are huge fans sure. of is automatically yeah. a red flag to me. <laughs> yes, yes, you're right. There you but go. That's more of like they are the bad. Like, they are the bad, um, specifically Lennon. Yeah, I think yo, I think our girl Yoko gets roped in to being bad a lot because of her associations, and yeah. I think because of the the rampant misogyny that has always been present in rock and roll and just the world in general, that she gets a lot of blame for shit. Whereas to me, the the bad was always Lennon. That guy fucking sucked. So anyways, but yes, I'm with you on that. Mark David Chapman, give that guy a lifetime achievement award, right? The, The funny thing is though, to their credit, to their credit as a couple, they really were champions of some very interesting, eccentric, and bizarre artists. Yeah, um, they gave this. They gave Jodorowsky a million dollars just because they liked El Topo so much. Yeah, I mean Yoko Ono is an interesting character under herself. You know, you can you can definitely have a pretty interesting discussion about her. Um, and I think that as opposed to what other people want to say where it's like she was writing on Lennon's coattails. I think it's the reverse. I think the thing is Lennon <clears throat> was riding on her coattails because she was actually cool and interesting. And he, there's not, a, there wasn't a lot to him and a lot of what, you know, his, what is considered his, um, I guess reawakening there is psychedelic reawakening. I think a lot of it is real, just um, it's very, very transparent and there's not a lot of depth to it. It was like him trying to impress Yoko, whereas he didn't have a lot going on in his brain. Well, look who's still alive. Look who won. Right, exactly. So anyway, sorry to sidetrack that too much about that, but yes. Well, that's to say, the reason I bring that up... um, 
as that being a red flag to me is uh, so I will admit that this does feel very fart huffy at times. Right. Um, it's an avant-garde film that borders on like an egomaniacal, like live action art installation at times, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, with Jordorowski being the alchemist and the central figurehead and the one leading on uh, uh, the spiritual journey. Like that's yeah. the, the egomania of that. And, and lots of it feeling like a live action art installation at times. But yeah, sure. Yeah, That's, it, it seems it like can it's be a, pretentious. Yeah. Right. It's, it seems like it's very self-indulgent. Yeah, it is. And, and I admit that while you can, you can have both. It's, it can be that and you can also enjoy it. So yeah, that would say that, but also, you know, more, you know, a more serious bad. I do feel like little people, the little people in this are used in, to me, in an exploitative manner, it feels like a bad beat for the disabled community, just in terms of like, unlike freaks, where they're like empowered in that movie, this feels like they they exist in this film as grotesque oddities that are made to be in this as like, to be like freakish and as a a spectacle off off putting. Yeah, yeah, as a spectacle. Yeah, that is something that I that I did have crossed my mind while watching this was how I felt about the representation of those folks in here. So I'm glad that you pointed that out. And obviously another bad, a bad beat for animals, obviously just yes. to be an animal on set. If you're not one of those black goats, you're fucked. And it's a, <laughs> it's an Auschwitz of animals in this film. Um, <laughs> Yeah, but so I'm with you. A questionable when a film has all the questions, does it have any? <laughs> right. That is my enlightened statement of for this category. No, I don't have any fucking questions. And I think we did a really good job of really asking each other, what does this mean to you along the way? And I think that's the biggest question. What does this mean to you? And we've answered that over and over again. So it means everything I, and nothing at the same it time. It means everything and nothing at once. I agree. I, I did want to point out yeah, uh, before we do move on that I feel that specifically with Berg and his wife, Berg mm-hmm. again is, the, is the, the advisor, this really came to mind. And I saw somebody mention this in one of the reviews that I read, and it was a negative review, but it did make me really think that <laughs> – a lot of these characters could easily be uh, put into a John Waters film. There's this, which, which is the perfect segue. Oh no, wait, never mind. There's there's this camp yeah, trash aspect to it, like the with you know again the 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 cross dressing gender bender and ambiguous sexuality about it as well. Yeah, the singing asshole would be right right at home here. The singing asshole would be perfect in this. I, I thoroughly. <laughs> no one would have blinked a third brown eye at that. N- no. no. Third, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, shit. Okay. You are excrement. You can change yourself into gold. So moving on to our awards and category section, um, we start with the David Mendenhall Award, which goes to the worst performance. Who did you have 
as the worst performance in this movie. I I didn't have anyone. I don't have anyone either. Because you could be as fucking crazy as you wanted in this movie, or as bad <laughs> of an actor as you wanted, and it would all just it would all just jive. I don't have anyone as a sticking point as this was the worst performance. Because I don't think there is any such thing as that in this. Yeah. So a big a big donut from both of us on that one. We're we're not handing out that that award. Everyone file out accordingly. Uh, the Frank Booth Award, which goes to the character who best belongs in a David Lynch movie. Um, I said the Alchemist. Yeah. But yeah, just pick your poison. Right. This is another. I, this is almost a big donut as well, because it's replete with David Lynch style. And as I said before. John Waters uh, appropriate. Yeah, that's what I was thinking of when you brought that up. I was like, I was thinking we were segueing perfectly, but then I forgot that it's the David Lynch Award, not the John Waters Award. So Yeah, the, um, the Divine Award goes to the character who best belongs. Maybe that could be a, a, yeah, a, a new category. Next year, yeah. <laughs> the, the Divine Award for the character that's eaten the most shit in this movie. <laughs> Right. Well, and and yes, it's a movie that has reference, very, very noticeable reference to fecal matter. This is more metaphorical, but I like that category of someone that's like eating the most shit in the movie, like that's taking the most punishment. I love that. That's that's the category born right on right here live. Okay. Yeah. Are we going to hand out any fucking awards tonight? Um, The next one. (laughs) I have, well... I, I, I have def- one for this. Yeah, so do I. Okay. The E.G. Daily Secret Admirer Award goes to the biggest on-screen crush. Who did you have? I, I want to go with the written woman, the the assistant. Oh, the assistant. Okay. Yeah. The admin assistant. The, uh... Oh. Yeah, there's, there's this dark... There's obviously a very dark, mysterious quality that, that, that she portrays because she's... Yeah. She, she is... In a lot of ways, she's representing the essence of knowledge um, that, you know, that assists the alchemist. Yeah. Let me open up that third eye, girl. Um, who did I have? Oh, Isla. I love Isla, the, the representative of, the, of planet Mars. She's got like a proto uh, Grace Jones thing going on. Um I, yeah. I loved her whole vibe and she's gorgeous, just stunningly gorgeous. So yeah, I went with her. Uh, we didn't talk about this. I love that. I, I had, I didn't even have to think about this. Well, welcome to the primetime bitch award goes to the best one liner. Do you have, do you have a favorite? Well, and it's funny because this is another thing that I wanted to bring up while we were having the discussion, the prime discussion about this was, this movie is also very, very noticeably lacking in dialogue, and that it was does play out like a well. silent film. Yeah, there, like there's a, really yeah. there's no dialogue in this, and again, that was totally intentional on Yurovsky's part. The dialogue doesn't start to pick up really in, until the the alchemist uh, reintroduction. So there's not a lot of one liners. To me, the, the only standout one is. Well, I shouldn't say that because when they're getting into the seven, there's quite a bit of chatter in there. We did talk about the the psychedelic weapons and rock and roll guns. That's yeah. a good one. Uh, 
But to me, the the prime one is always the you are excrement, turn yourself to gold line. Oh, that one, yeah. Yeah. Mine unequivocally, I didn't even have to think about it. When they're ascending the mountain, the one woman is struggling and you just hear the alchemist shout down, rub your clitoris against the mountain. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's Isla. Yeah, Isla is the one that's oh, it is Isla. Bump- Isla starts yeah. bumping and grinding on the mountain. Yeah, so she does. Rub your clitoris against the mountain is is in the Vulcan of Primetime Bitch Hall of Fame. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So the wiki wormhole discussion to round out our episode. Maybe you can help me on this. What the hell is the body count? This is the type of thing that I, I don't keep track of during the while I'm watching. I just look up afterwards, but I could not find it. Did anyone die in this? Yeah. There's a lot of people that die in this. Oh, I guess the people get shot in the street and all that. Yeah. 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 Are there any main, main character? Well, uh, the, there's the beheading. I forgot about that. Um, okay. Well, so the, what the hell? Where are we at with this body count wise? I don't know. All right. It's indistinguishable. A lot of people die, though. But I'm sure it's nowhere close to if we're if we're keeping tally, it's nowhere close to the reigning champ, which is still dead alive. alive. So eighty-seven. Okay. Well, um, here's some fun trivia about the movie. Uh, This is this is real fun. Before filming began, uh, Jodorowsky spent a week without sleep under a Zen master's direction and lived communally with the film's cast for a month. That's the only way to approach filming this kind of movie. Exactly. The ultimate immersion method way (laughs) of creating a movie. It is a very method actory way of doing it. Um, I like this part. Uh, we were talking about all the animals that have a bad beat in this, but um, the crucified animal carcasses um, were borrowed from a local restaurant, and afterwards they were served to customers, and they were cooked and, and served to customers. So at least they were used. Wait. Yeah, waste not, one not. I wonder if all those toads got eaten. No, apparently not. Um. <laughs> spoiled the toads. Yeah. This one's weird. I don't even understand this one. During the boating sequence, Jodorowsky had intended to shoot a scene where the group leaps into the ocean to, quote, get in the infinite waters. The cast proceeded to leap into the water and then promptly began to drown. The crew was so busy trying to rescue everybody that nothing of the scene ended up even being shot. Oh, wow. Did no Was no one asked if they could swim? Right. <laughs> what does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> They all just jumped in the water and sank like a stone. <laughs> there was there wasn't a swimmer not, amongst them. Not a one. Yeah, not a one of them could fucking swim for their life. That's funny. But not only that, none of them spoke up. They're all like, "Well, better learn how to swim on camera." <laughs> yeah. Um. This is this is uh, more insight into that toad scene, but Jodorowsky recalls that the lizard and toad circus. I love the dichotomy between shooting these two animals because it was they were diametrically opposed uh, in terms of shooting. Anyway, uh, he uh, he recalls the lizard and toad circus was difficult to prepare for and film. The toads themselves were hard to dress up, and their quote their and quote their urine burned like acid, and they'd keep filling up with air and then blowing it out trying to escape. The lizards, on the other hand, were incredibly sedate. Uh, 
cameramen would have to leave the camera rolling for long periods of time before they'd even flick their tongues or move their eyes. <laughs> Jesus wow. Christ. What a fuck show. <laughs> um, that sounds so terrible. And you got to sh- shoot both of them at the same time. Like, how do you even do that? Jeez. They're the biggest divas on set. Actually, I go back. I take it back. The David Mendenhall Award goes to the Toads. Jeez. The Toads. <laughs> Much yeah, like the real De- David Mendenhall. He's just pissing himself and fucking <laughs> <laughs> acting like a little shit, a little prima donna shit. <laughs> So fuck them. Good thing they died because they weren't going to get paid for their work. Yeah, I wish there was a David Mendenhall level fucking erasure from this world. Um, Okay. What, What else on here is, oh, this is the most interesting tidbit that I had. George Harrison himself. This is a very Beatlesy episode. Uh, Big fan of Jodorowsky after seeing uh, El Topo. He originally wanted the role of the thief, but disagreed with Jodorowsky over um, what they considered gratuitous nudity, particularly the shot where the thief's anus is being scrubbed vigorously. Rather than casting a stand-in or removing the shot altogether, Jodorowsky stood his ground, prompting Harrison to drop out. He said if Harrison was going to be in the movie, he'd have to spread cheek and fucking get his asshole scrubbed. Jodorowsky later expressed some regret over this in the Anchor Bay DVD commentary, noting that Harrison's involvement could have exposed the film to an even larger audience. <laughs> you got played, my man. Um, but really, Harrison drew, drew the line at asshole scrubbing. He was like, all right, I'll do everything but that. And then Jodorowsky didn't even put in an asshole double. You know, props to Jodorowsky as a man that has always stood by his vision and fuck George Harrison. So, hey. Yeah, who's the real asshole now? Yeah, right. <laughs> and hey, also, notably, who's still alive? Not George Damn. Harrison. Damn. Yeah. Who's the bitch that died? Who's the I man that's still kicking it? Is the thief still alive? That'd be interesting. The, the, the thief is still alive. It's a guy named like Horatio Salinas or oh, something. Oh, you know he's still Wow, okay. He's still yeah. alive. Good. Good for him. The last and final one that I have here, um, this is fucking nuts, and and would have this would have catapulted this this film into uh, one of the most infamous movies of all time if it had happened during the decapitation scene. The actor actually struck Jodorowsky for real, cutting his neck and nearly killing him. Jodorowsky reflects oh, wow. back, saying, "Had the sword sword been real, he would have literally been decapitated." Oh, <laughs> on camera. <laughs> which you know, talk about th- this movie would th- think of just what would ha- this movie would be propelled into like uh you'd have to go to the the, the darkest depths of the internet to find this movie because it'd be like the director decapitated himself on set <laughs> right yeah it would have been relegated to the status of like a deathbed the bed that eats eats sort of legendary I mean, in the twilight zone movie they'd, they'd kill a bunch of kids they kill yeah they kill children <laughs> And that blood is not on John Landis's hands. I do not want to hear it. <laughs> I was going to bring up John Landis, but fair enough. Um, <laughs> I did have one little, <laughs> I do have one tidbit that I read about this. Yeah. It's interesting yeah. that apparently uh, there was a deleted scene that involved two children. One of them was a naked girl 
Yes. Watching, yeah. And uh, she's uh, watching across, sorry, watching across made from television sets. And Yonorowski said that they had to delete the scene because the girl's mom threatened to sue for pedophilia. Yeah, because her, her, her buttocks is uh, exposed. But what they know more about it is actually, so his son, uh, who is in El Topo, um, his name is Brontus Jodorowsky. So Brontus was also in that scene. And so he doesn't appear in this movie because that scene got shot. But what he what he claims, the, the, the mother of the daughter claims that she was traumatized seeking money. But he, the Jodorowsky's son went to school with this girl and claimed she was, that was all fabricated. Sure. Um, and in the end, it was thrown out in trial. She didn't get any of the money that she was seeking, but the judge just ruled that the scene be cut out. So, which is mm. funny because it that deleted scene is on, depending on what version of this movie you own, it's on the DVD. So, oh, okay. it was deleted, but like it's still watchable. She must have just had the shittiest lawyer of all time. I mean, <laughs> she shouldn't have Jackie Childs. No, yeah, she did not. Yeah. <laughs> Was the scene deleted? Was the scene with the naked girl deleted? <laughs> now, what did you tell them? <laughs> Who told you to put mom on? Did I tell you to put mom on? Right. Who told you to get dressed? Did I tell you to get dressed? Okay. Um, <laughs> what do we want to rate this film? Oh, it's, what is it's, the the iconography one yeah, we want to use it, first? It's it's resplendent with so much iconography. I know. <sighs> Piles of gold shit, shit turned to gold. Um, yeah, gold doo doo fixes gold doo doo. Okay, gold doo doo out of pile out of, five of gold, gold doo doo. What do you give it? You have to give it a five because you don't even have any bad. Yeah, I gave it a five. Again, when I when I discussed this on Letterbox and rated it, I gave it a five. I just said, I just said, you know, I feel that this this movie f- is definitely worth a perfect score. Now, Adam, so. I've said this time and time again. Um, to me, the only detraction here is that it just doesn't have a, a ton of replay yes. value. I right. always say this. I have but to come dis- back to a movie repeatedly. Yeah, but I disagree. That's the the whole point of this movie is replay value. You're supposed to watch it to get more out of it over and over. But I, I understand what you're saying. It's it's not an it's not an easy watch. It's not a movie that you can just sit around with the bros and crack open some cold ones and you know just kick it back. Is a, I think Jodorowsky is a fun movie. If you had a party. It's a fun movie to have on mute in the background visually because it's visually right. stunning. But yeah, if I'm like, if I'm crushing a bunch of za and shotgun and some beers, I'm putting Cobra on. I'm not putting Cobra this on. shit on. When you're cut, uh, cutting your pizza with your scissors. Yeah, I'm, I'm cutting my pizza with my scissors. I got my glasses on inside. It's midnight. Yeah, I'm putting yeah. Cobra on all day, I, every I, day. I, I, I I understand fully. So go ahead. It's a long-winded way of saying I'll give it a four and a half or a a four and a half out of five. Okay. But we're both on the same page. We both love this this movie. It's a great Um, movie. Really, really. And I'm and I'm really I can't thank you enough for putting this one into the queue. 
Oh, great. Oh, well, you're, you're welcome. And I, I can't wait to do another one next year. Um, I've only seen three or four of his movies, so... Um, we don't have many. That's really yeah. it. I guess maybe I've seen all of them then. Oh, well, I've seen Santa Sangre, El Topo, and this. That's it. That's all I've seen. Yeah, there was a later one that he released that I still have not seen. That was released in the in the last decade or so. Oh, no shit. Yeah. What a I'm completely what a drawn a blank on. Oh, The Dance a, of Reality? There you go. That one. And then he followed that up with a movie called Endless Poetry. Yeah. Ugh, I don't know. I don't know why intrinsically I'm, I'm like already not going to watch that. I don't know why. Maybe it's rules. Who knows? Yeah, don't I don't know. trust 2013 Jodorowsky for what it's worth. Yeah. Anyway, as we gear up into our spooky season here, October's right around the corner. The next four episodes are going to be a horror laden murderer's row. Um, so to kick it off, what are you going to bestow upon us for our first Halloween spooky season October episode? Well, in the spirit of continuing from this movie in more ways than one, um, I feel like me taking a week off might have been fortuitous because I want to immediately segue from this movie into a movie that I've been wanting to talk about for a long time, and it's perfect uh, to kick off the the horror Halloween series off with uh, because it does have an association with Jodorowsky, incidentally. But it is going to be 1977's Alucarda. Come again? <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard of that. Alucarda. Alucarda. Uh, it is also a Mexican horror movie. Oh. And it was directed by Juan Lopez Moctezuma, oh. who, who was part of Jodorowsky's film crew. Oh, a disciple of the man himself. Yeah, he worked He worked with Jodorowsky. We are getting weird and wild right off the bat. I love it. I've yeah, never seen this. Yeah, it's great. I, I really feel like you're going to love this movie. And when we talk about it, we'll be able to discuss it. It actually has a very, very small... Um, has a small bit of importance to Indiana music. Uh, uh, really? And the Indiana music scene that we are familiar with, that some of our friends are a part of. Whoa, well, wow, Maui, wowie. This reminds me just, just based on this imagery of uh, Ken Russell's The Devils a little bit. I don't yeah, know if, it has well, any, if it's similar at all, but. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't say that it is. it is all too dissimilar, actually. Oh, cool! Because I fucking love that movie. <laughs> yeah, it is definitely of a of a of a similar of a similar gym, like cut from a similar gym. and yes. iconoclastic imagery. Oh, I'm all about it. Yeah, let's Absolutely. get into it. That's great. So I'm really looking forward to talking about this movie. It's one of my favorite movies. Great. Okay, and I've got a curveball for you nice. this month. I can't wait. I'm really looking forward to it. 
This has been another deep dive into Midnight Movie Madness. Big thanks to Charlotte Blythe for providing our intro music. Our outro music is brought to you by Sleep with their song Holy Mountain. If you're a band looking to submit a song or a listener looking to submit a question, feel free to shoot us an email at midnightflixpod at gmail.com. Hit us up on Instagram. Hit us up on TikTok. We're on the TikTok. Midnight Flix Pod. For Adam Walker and Pat Mitchell. Stop it, I'm a killer. 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 I'm a